Welcome to a Buy Ingram podcast. It's a Buy Ingram because it's based on a blog that I've written by me. Uh, and you can find my blogs on greyhairmedia.com. And this one is entitled DSEI Makes Me Feel Cheated. The reason why I wrote this was very personal. Um, it came to me on 11th of September as I was on my way down to DSEI in London. Um, DSEI being one of the world's largest defence exhibitions um, and the date was the 11th of September and it reminded me of another 11th of September not the one in 2001 where the Twin Towers were attacked by Al-Qaeda but the 11th of September when I was in another conflict zone this time on a reconnaissance a few weeks before deploying for over half a year and I was sitting in the back of a Chinook helicopter flying into the Italian Brigade in Multinational Division Southeast Area of Responsibility in Southeast Iraq, and it was 2005. Now, when you're flying in any helicopter, and when you're flying in a Chinook, you, the, you get the feeling of forward motion, uh, the movement. Um, it was actually quite surreal. There was only three passengers in the back of this very large aircraft, myself, General Officer Commanding 1 UK Armoured Division uh, and his Chief of Staff. Um, and we had flown in from Basra, where um, Headquarters Multinational Division Southeast was based. Um, and we were spending a day in the Italian sector, uh, meeting the Italians, the Australians and others that were in the area. Um, and I was quite excited because they had some good unmanned aerial reconnaissance platforms that I wanted to use and make sure that I could task them and they weren't under just purely national control when I was there. Um, the Chinook had been flying in quite fast, quite low, um, good views out the window, it was nice seeing the ground, feeling was good and then the forward motion transitions into a hover as it gets ready for landing and you, you know that, you, the, there's a change of engine note, the pitch of the rotor blades changes um, they all signal that you're coming into your objective, training clicks in, you immediately um, check your rifle, check your helmet, check you've got your webbing on, check the quick release um, buckle on your harness so that you can get out quickly, um, getting ready to get off the back of the aircraft as quickly as possible once you land. As the hover comes in, you smell the burnt aviation fuel coming in through the open doors, you, you pick up the heat from the desert sands, um, and you do another quick check of everything to make sure that it's it's ready should you have to get off quickly. Um, and at that moment in time, I was feeling good. And then all of a sudden, from nowhere, I got, I, got, I got a shiver just straight down the back of my spine and the hairs on the back of my neck stood out. And I had one thought, a very irrational thought, phone back to Basra. Um, and as I said, Basra was the location for headquarters, multinational division southeast, and and the feeling was that I had to phone quickly. Something something had happened. Something was going on. A very very, it's a weird feeling, but very powerful feeling. Nothing indicated to it. And I remember thinking I just had to do it. And as we landed, um, unbuckled myself, I stood up. On the way back uh, out of the back of the aircraft, you know, I tapped the. General Officer Commanding on the shoulder and said, um, Sir, I need to go make a phone call. And he nodded to me. Um, I looked at the Chief of Staff, who shrugged his shoulders at me um, and was sort of less um, appeasing to my disappearing off for a few moments because <clears throat> we were going straight into um, a, a very important briefing. But I, I knew I had to go and make this phone call. 
Um, so I followed the crew into the operations room uh, to get to a phone and pulled out my ready reckoner of telephone numbers and phoned back to the guy that I was taking over from in Basra. Um, and his phone answered on its second ring. That in itself was unusual. He was never in the office. The daily routine never allowed anyone to be sat there. The phone was usually answered by one of the um, NCOs in the intelligence cell, um, and Andy picked it up on the second ring. I knew then that something was going on to keep him fixed to his phone. And I said, Andy, this is a bit strange, but I've just had the urge to phone you. What's happened? His reply was brief. I can't tell you, Phil. And it was then that I knew my second day in Iraq that something serious had happened. And I you know, quite firmly said, you, you, you get this, this, this sort of almost authoritarian training clicks in. Uh, and I said, Andy, I'm with the new GOC. I've just left him to make this phone call. I can't explain to him that I can't be told what is going on, um, having just gone off with no real rationale for doing it. Um, what the fuck has happened, Andy? And my tone made it very clear that he was going to have to answer. His next few words floored me completely. He said, it's Matt. He's dead. There's been an IED, multiple casualties. The incident is still ongoing, but Matt is dead. And my heart sank. My old company second in command. My human intelligence officer to be in Iraq. Someone I was looking forward to working with again. My mate. He was due to meet me early that evening. And he'd just been killed in a roadside bomb in Basra. On his way out from Basra Palace to the airport. And I'm talking of Major Matt Bacon. Fourteen years later to the day, I'm at a huge defence and security exhibition, as I said, DSEI in London. Armoured vehicles, weapon systems, helicopters, warships, new aeroplanes, missiles, and so many situational awareness capabilities are on display. And I feel cheated. Matt, as I said, was travelling out of Basra in one of the British Army's uh, snatch Land Rovers, a lightly armoured vehicle, only good to protect against limited small arms fire, no good against sophisticated improvised explosive devices that were designed to penetrate armour um, through the use of an explosively formed projectile, a copper disc that um, effectively produced a, a, an almost molten um, jet of um, uh, copper that would penetrate through armour, not quite a jet. The um, explosives specialists will um, slate me for saying that, but it, it, it's designed to penetrate armour. Um, and he was travelling in that because his helicopter had broken down twice. He had operational meetings to prepare for that afternoon, and he wanted to, using his words when I'd spoken to him um, uh, only a day beforehand, get his shit together for briefing me. This sort of diligence was one of Matt's strengths. At subsequent inquests, the Snatch Land Rovers came in for huge criticism um, and blame for so many of the losses and injuries that suffered in Iraq. Um, uh, and in the subsequent early days in Afghanistan, I have no doubt they were partially to blame. Uh, I think it was unfair calling them mobile coffins um, because their protection was inadequate for the threat. But it was a vehicle and a vehicle was needed. And the reason why I think if it was unfair is if you're relying on the armour of a vehicle for protection and only the armour on a vehicle for protection, you have failed 
because you're protecting against something that is going to go bang, whether it's a bullet being fired or an explosive going off. Your protection starts trying to stop something from going bang in the first place. Start back with the intelligence process, identifying the threats from groups, on routes, to convoys, identifying what weapons may be used and against what targets or modes of transport can be dictated. It's easy to say no road moves, air movement only, or tracked escort required, or only use tracked vehicles because you know that they've got a higher level of armour. It's easy to put routes out of bounds until they've been properly searched by search teams because you've got intelligence to suggest that there's an improvised explosive device along that route. You don't send patrols along it if you know that that's happening. This is all part of what should be and must be a layered protection framework. And the final bit of protection is the armour in the vehicle. And you should have to rely on that least. The first week of my full deployment into Iraq saw the operation um, to arrest the team that had carried out the attack on Matt's convoy. Um, It was planned, executed, we got them. We disrupted an active cell targeting British soldiers in Iraq, targeting Iraqi soldiers in Iraq, targeting Allied soldiers in Iraq. But instead of being pleased with a successful operation, I was disturbed, very, very disturbed. Before an operation, there's a targeting pack put together, uh, and that brings in all the geographical information, all of the intelligence, all of the information about the individuals that are there, and the layout of the buildings that um, you're going to carry out the operation into to try and reduce the threat for those that are going in to carry out very dangerous arrest operations. Um, The intelligence was uh, quite detailed. There was a lot of intelligence about this particular group and what they were planning to do and everything else. And the disturbing fact came from the point that the majority of this intelligence was dated before the 11th of September, before the attack had happened. With the focus that was provided by the incident, you've you've effectively got a lens. And that allows you to look backwards because you've got a starting point and pull out bits of information that are buried in thousands or tens of thousands of bits of information that come through and pull it together because that lens gives you the picture on the front of the jigsaw box that you can then pick out the little pieces and put together and identify what's going on there. Without that lens, sometimes it's virtually impossible unless you've got some quite sophisticated tools to be able to pick up the patterns that you need to look for what's going on. But The information that we had in that targeting pack, the information that should have been turned into intelligence, um, but we didn't have the capacity to do it, was quite clear. We saw in the weeks leading up to the attack a pattern of activity within a certain group. They had got improvised explosive devices. The pattern was around one or two locations. There was information suggesting where they were operating out of. There was information suggesting that this group was intending to target a convoy coming out of Basra. We had information as to what they intended to do. The pattern showed the likely routes that they were targeting and the route that Matt's convoy came out on came out as, with 2020 hindsight analysis, the most likely route that they'd attack. And they give indications that in the days just before the 11th of September, they were ready to carry out this attack. 
We could see all this because we had a fixed point, which was the attack. We could work back from that and piece together what had happened. The information that had been with thousands and thousands of reports that were that was unintentionally buried in the volume of information that was coming into the intelligence cell just hadn't raised itself above the threshold to allow it to be prioritised. There was too much other priority information coming through that was getting processed. It was buried as there were no tools to help the human analyst look for the very subtle patterns that dealing with an insurgency are vital indicators and those patterns only really stand out with hindsight. The trouble is hindsight is history and we were J2, the intelligence organisation, charged with predicting what was going to happen, to see into the future, to provide, amongst other things, that vital layer of protection outside of the armour vulnerability of lightly armoured vehicles. The, the analysts were working to breaking point and beyond, trying to deal with the volume of information that they were having to try and process. For every successful attack, they had predicted and stopped 5, 10, 15 other attacks. The analysts were doing an absolutely amazing job under impossible circumstances. You know, I had, quite clearly, a, a Tour de France, uh, an Olympic standard team trying to compete in competition with a child's bicycle's worth of equipment. And in the most part, they remain competitive. A measure of the team's human ability but from time to time, something fell off, and when that happened, people died or were maimed. I didn't have coherent databases. I didn't have linked pattern analysis tools. I didn't have the basic tools that enabled an intelligence operation reliant on spotting subtleties, reliant on quickly identifying patterns, reliant on the ability to process multiple sources of information and enable the analysts to handle the volume of information that was coming through. If those were new tools and hadn't been invented at the time, then there's nothing I could do about it. This would just be a standard whinging blog or a podcast. However, the tools that existed in Northern Ireland from the early 1980s, they'd helped the security forces predict terrorist activity with real accuracy and disrupt them successfully. And in 2005, I did not have those tools on operations where lives were being lost. As I left Iraq in 2006 after what was a very, very harrowing tour, with too many incidents, my intelligence team failed to predict through no fault of their effort, through no fault of their diligence or their training. It failed because they were in an international race with a child's bicycle's level of equipment. I rode back to permanent joint headquarters in Northwood in my post-operational tour report and said the lack of an integrated intelligence database and associated analysis tools has resulted in the deaths and injury of British and Allied service personnel and Iraqi civilians. I confirmed by phone that the report had been received and read. The only comment I got back was, Phil, you're right. So as I'm walking around DSEI, or as I walked around DSEI and was looking at all the analysis tools that are available, and thinking back to what I knew was available in the 1980s in Northern Ireland, and I talked through the history of the new tools that were being displayed by the companies um, at DSEI, um, I felt cheated. I felt cheated for Matt. I felt cheated for the three other soldiers very seriously injured in the attack. I felt cheated for the young medic who attended to them, his second incident in five days.
Fusilier Smith, who I wrote up for the George Medal for his efforts that day, and his efforts five days beforehand. It was a serious incident, a very serious incident. He got the award, but is now suffering after leaving the army. And I have read newspaper stories saying he spends days sleeping in his car in the hills to try and get away from the trauma that's going through his head. I feel for every one of the 13 others killed during my six and a half months in Iraq for the 40 plus physically injured with life-changing injuries through my tour. I feel cheated. They were cheated more. R.I.P. Matt. Rest in peace, mate. Rest in peace.